So we have something exciting, an experiment that we want to try out. Um, we are going to be doing a live event on our Instagram on April 29th. That is a fifth Friday. And you are correct. If you are thinking, wait, is this live event going to be a fifth Friday Fable Fest? <laughs> and yes. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. So we have really wanted to turn Fifth Friday Fable Fest into something that is interactive with our audience. And so we want to try doing a live on our Instagram. So Jeff and I will be retelling some fables live April 29th. And people who are watching along with us will be able to message in some of their thoughts for us to read out loud during the event so we can, you know, credit you with brilliant ideas about what you think about the moral of the tale and if it's still valid or useful to people today. And then we will be saving it on Instagram so that if you can't make it to the live, you'll still be able to access it and watch it after the fact. So we'd be so excited to have you there watching with us live on the 29th. Once upon a time. In a land far away. I'm Katrina. And I'm Jeff. And welcome to the Fairy Tellers podcast. Myth. Legend. Folklore. Fable. We explore what they say about cultures then and now. Grab a hot cup of cocoa and a comfy seat. While we retell you a thing. Welcome back to the podcast. As always, super excited to have you here with us. Where we once again have a great episode lined up. Because we're talking about vampires today. I love it when you're in a like silly goofy mood. <laughs> I am in a silly goofy mood. And I also love it when I'm in a silly goofy mood. Me that has to edit the podcast doesn't love it so much when I'm in a silly goofy mood, but he's not here, so <laughs> what do we care? <laughs> like that sounds like a problem for future Jeff. Exactly. Not a problem for future Jeff. A delight for present Jeff is we've gotten some more reviews and that's one of my favorite things to go and see what people are saying about our podcast. We yeah. love when you guys leave us reviews, especially on Apple podcasts. Cause if you're leaving them somewhere else, I'm not seeing them. I don't know how to find them, but we do see them when they come through from the Apple podcast review. And everyone is so nice. They are. We got, so nice. we got three reviews just this month, which is like, I don't, I don't know what inspired everybody. Everybody was in the mood in March to yeah. like go and like leave a review. So they were coming down off of the like love explosion of Valentine's day. Then they were like, okay, we need to get our fix again. What are we going to do? Send our love to our favorite podcasters. This first one, I am especially <laughs> excited to read. The <laughs> title of the review is unrashed bum. <laughs> it's a five star review titled <laughs> unrashed bum. I love this podcast. I literally feel related to the hosts. They are such fun. I would love this podcast, even if it caused me to have a bum rash. I would literally put batteries in my bum if they asked me to. Five stars from Valerie. <laughs> I just want to say that there's totally like a backstory for that review, which I love. 
So my cousin, Valerie, she saw the like one, I think it was like a three-star review. It wasn't even like a one-star review on our podcast, but she saw like the three-star review that somebody had written because of the, um, the reason why they left a three-star review is they were upset that I misunderstood that something that this cousin had told me about yeah. You got a, a fact TV about show. a TV show wrong and they yeah. took it very personally. They took it very personally. And... Yeah, so, in the episode of the podcast, she was like, oh, like, my cousin told me this, and because of that, this and this and this. And the thing that the cousin, which is Valerie, the reviewer in question, <laughs> told her the, the, that was an incorrect fact. And so Valerie yeah. felt, what, guilty for that? Yeah, yeah. She felt bad that she was like, oh, that was my fault. Because she, like, recently <laughs> saw that review, and she was like, oh, that's that was, like, my fault. I feel really bad. I should leave you, like, a really good review. And I was like, oh, no, you don't have to leave us a really good review. Like, it's okay. I was like, it actually makes podcasts look more legit if you have, like, negative reviews. And it's even better if the person who's left a negative review, when you read it, you can tell that, like, oh, this isn't something wrong with, like, the podcast. The per This says something about the person who, like, left the review. And I'm like, it's like if somebody was like, oh don't buy these batteries one star i stuck them up my butt and they gave me a rash <laughs> and like when you read that review you're not like oh i'm never gonna buy those batteries you're like there's something wrong here <laughs> like, <laughs> and so i don't need to be concerned with this because my intended uses and this person's uh -huh. intended uses are not the same so i don't yeah, think I exactly have to worry about yeah. what they're talking about. i don't have to worry about getting a rash because that's not what i'm going to use the batteries for Anyway, so I said that to her, which now I think that makes that review that she left make more sense. But also, I love that it's 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 the correct flavor of unhinged, I think. Yeah. And now it balances out like there's a review that's good that you can see that this person is. Well, I mean, she's not. It was a joke, but it, yeah. it's, it comes off as being very unhinged. And not that the other person was unhinged, but they just they they chose to focus on something that was not like an essential kind of yeah. element <laughs> of our podcast. So it bounces out. And so that was, yeah. that was delightful. Yeah. Valerie, at this moment, I'm taking the opportunity to say that I would like for you literally to never put batteries <laughs> into your body in any way, form or fashion. Please do. Our, not. our lawyers would want us to say, our lawyers have advised me to <laughs> advise you to not do anything of the sort. Uh, without consulting a medical professional first. But thank you for the great review. And she's been a very loyal listener from like the beginning. She's an OG listener. Yeah, she is. So she, she knows a thing or two. All right, we have another review from Hannah titled Fantastic Podcast. I've always been fascinated by folklore and fairy tales and this podcast does such a great job at introducing me to new stories. I love that they explore the cultural context behind the stories too. I teach high school English, and I thought the African dilemma tales were so cool. I'm currently writing a lesson about them for my students, and I can't wait to see the discussion that pops up. Thank you for all your hard work. And again, that was a five-star review from Hannah. Thank you so much. I know. That's so cool. Our African dilemma tales, we knew that that episode wasn't going to be one that... There are some of our episodes that have very... Not, not clickbaity titles, but like titles where people are somewhat familiar with the story or that it's like intriguing to them, you know, like Cinderella yeah, like is one that, you know, people are going to click on and African dilemma tales was one that, you know, I was like, 
a lot of people might not want know like what what they're like clicking on or getting into when they like listen to that episode. And but so far, like everybody that I've talked to who like listened to that episode, they really liked that and found it really fascinating because it was like a tale type that they hadn't been familiar with. And so it was like cool and new information. Yeah. And I I loved it. It was like one of it's one of my favorite recent episodes. And I think about it all the time, just that whole aspect of like the dilemma tales and like purposefully like opening up conversation in a way that's like safe and like related to things going on. It's like sometimes I'm in situations where I'm like, wow, we could really use an African dilemma tale about this situation to help us kind of clear the air of some things going on. Or even like understand, like even if you think somebody's solution is wrong, you still want to understand why? why they think the way that they're yeah. thinking. Yeah. It's really, it's like so cool. That was one of my favorite episodes. So you haven't listened to it yet. Go back and give it a listen. Cause again, one of my favorites of our recent thing. So thank you so much, Hannah, for the review. I'm like a little bit torn about how I feel that, um, okay. You know what? I feel better. It's like, she's not going to use our podcast for her lesson for her high school students. I don't want to <laughs> contribute to like the misinformation of today's youths, but I'm glad that our you know, our podcast inspired her to write a lesson about African dilemma tales. That's really cool. And that's like, this is one of the things I feel like is so satisfying and rewarding about the podcast. It's like, I love that I get to experience new things and learn new things. And then also that other people are learning things like, and also being excited by them to the point that they then want to share like that cascade effect, you know, like, and maybe those students will remember that and they'll share it with somebody else. And it's just like, now there's a whole bunch more people that know how cool African dilemma tales are, you know? Yeah. Because of us, we did that. (laughs) And Hannah is going to do that. So that's awesome. All right, one more. This is from Zebeta. I think that's how you say it. Z-E-E-B-A-E-E-T-A. Thoughtful and funny, exclamation point, is the title. I absolutely love this podcast. Both Katrina and Jeff are so thoughtful and funny. Oh. (laughs) their chemistry is wonderful and you can tell they take a lot of time and care into researching the stories they discuss they also make the dankest fairy tale memes of all time give them a listen exclamation (laughs) point thank you so much and also thank you so much for giving me so much more credit than i am due (laughs) for the researching and the dank fairy tale memes uh both of those are 99.7 percent katrina and i agree like katrina really does take a lot of time and put a lot of care into researching. Um, and so much of that research is not used for anything. It's like, you got to go through a lot oh, to get to yeah. the stuff that ends up being used. So I Dude. see that behind the scenes. I know how much he does and it really does inform the podcast in, in an amazing yeah. way. So Katrina, I also thank you for that. Oh, and what's like amazing about that too. This is this, the episode that we're doing today is kind of an example of this, of like, I'll I'll do research on something and be like, I I can't see use for this right now, but it's interesting like information for me to know. And then I will back catalog it in my brain yeah. of like, oh, yep, that information was in that place. And then when I was prepping for the episode today, I was like, wait, what? And I like went back and knew exactly which books to be like grabbing off the shelf for research to go to. And so, yeah, it is crazy how much like how much research no one hears about it's just something that is then stuck in my brain for <laughs> yeah for use for later hopefully yeah, you maybe. never know when it's going to come up and it's kind of one of those things too where it's like you just have to do it like you never know what you're going to read that is the thing that actually will be 
used or will spark the thought that leads to something else. It's like, yeah. you just kind of have to do it. And it is surprising. Yeah. So it's like, you, it's just part of the process. You got it. You just have to do it. You just have to read through all this stuff. And it does, even if it doesn't get used like a reference, like it does inform your general knowledge about something. Yeah. And it's like, I see a lot more of the research than even you at home do. So, but there's even so much that I don't see. So it's like, yeah, Katrina really does put some time and care into the research. And she does, in fact, make the dankest fairy tale memes of all time. Thank you to everyone who has reviewed our podcast, the three we read today, and everyone that reviewed it before. It really does a lot to help, you know, spread our podcast, help other people find it that might enjoy it. So if you want to uh, help us out, you could go and leave us a review on whatever platform that you uh, listen to your podcasts on. If that platform happens to be Apple Podcasts and we can find it, then we will at some point probably read some more of these on the on the on the I want to say on the air, but that's like an you know a, a vestigial old, term, yeah, from the days term. of the radio. Um, but yeah, but we'll read on the on in an episode and get to share your beautiful, lovely words with the rest of the world. So, thanks again, everyone who wrote in. And now, for the moment you've all been waiting for. So today's episode is another listener request. And I don't know what it was about like this like last month because it's like we got three new reviews and then uh, I had a handful in the last like seven days. I've probably had like that many people who have written in requesting stuff uh, with like more episode requests. Awesome. That's exciting. And yeah, so I've been like writing them down and I'm like, okay, oh, awesome. Like I'll get right on that. And then what's also great is like sometimes somebody will request something and then they'll ask a question and then they'll also tell me something like a connection that they made in their mind. Yeah. From another episode, which just encourages me to do another episode based on that where it's like they didn't request that right they they kind of made a connection that then made me go oh my goodness that would be amazing for something else and write it down so a lot of really good stuff coming in from people so today's episode is mostly one listener's request but a little bit of a request of a friend of mine a friend of mine asked if we could do maybe some tales that are about like plagues or pandemics. And this episode will graze up against that. <laughs> Was that a All creepy right. way of saying that? <laughs> It'll graze up against it. <laughs> I'm into it. I like it. Nice. As long as it's consensual grazing. Like on the savannah. <laughs> but we had a request come in from uh, a person named Jack on Instagram, which... Of course, Jack is a name that resonates with a folklore <laughs> podcast. But Jack sent me a message and he said, I know you just did an episode two weeks ago about Russian folklore. However, I'm <laughs> going to suggest to do some other Slavic folk tales or fairy tales divorced from Russia. Because like every time you look up Slavic folk tales, it always is from Russia, ignoring all the other Slavic countries like Ukraine or Poland. And I'm like, you know what? That's fair. Especially yeah. because, like, the Baba Yaga episode that we put out, obviously, right in front of that episode, like, there was a message explaining that, like, when we recorded the episode, we did not know uh, what was going to happen in the future. Yeah. <laughs> and it was, like, bad. And, yeah, we definitely were, like, 
at, talking with each other about how appropriate it was to like put out an episode of a Russian story with everything that was going on. So when I got this like request to like, you know, kind of counteract that by doing other Slavic folk tales from other like regions, I was like, of course. The thing I like about the request is again, the thing I love about this podcast is broadening our horizons some, you know? Yeah. And I think it'll be cool because broadening our horizons in a direction that we've already kind of ventured, like in because we have done a few things from Russia mm-hmm. on the podcast before, as we've talked about in those episodes, you know, like there are commonalities with neighboring areas, like he's talking about with, you know, Poland, Romania, whatever, like there's lots of folklore there. And it's like, we, there may, we may find really interesting connections and be able to like wonder about like, well, this sounds a lot like something else that we've heard before. Like how could they possibly be related and stuff like that, which is one of my favorite things to do. Yeah. When I thought back like on other episodes we've done, cause obviously like in the last like two and a half years, we've done like a couple different episodes on like Russian fairy tales because they kind of, that is kind of the dominant available narratives. You know what I'm saying? Where it's like, Oh, yeah. oh yeah. these ones are the most accessibly made for, like an English speaking audience or an English reading audience in our case. And so it's like, okay, yeah. Like it makes sense that we have done several uh, Russian like folk tales, like in the past, but yeah, it's like, there are other countries and cultures that we could be looking at for other stories, especially like in that region, um, which has a extremely fascinating history. So now I'm going to give us a very fast fascinating history of the area (laughs) (laughs) yes i'm like i feel like i do a lot of these like very fast like history lessons where it's like down and dirty history lessons i feel like i did that for our king arthur episode too where i was like let me very quickly explain the history (laughs) hey gotta do what you gotta do man yeah so ukraine is in a very interesting location historically and a very like busy and like fought over and trade route uh centered location in the world and the reason for that is because of the carpathian mountains okay the carpathian mountains will be familiar to most people from the story dracula (laughs) Mm. Um, unless you've like been around this region. So it's the third longest mountain range in Europe and it runs currently, it runs through several different countries, but because of the way that this mountain range is situated on a map, it's, it's easier to go around it through the black sea than to like cross over it. And so throughout history, you've had several different, groups all trying to come into the same area so you have scandinavians who were coming from the north and the that group of people were called the rus which is where we get russian from Mm -hmm. and so they were coming over the north you had mongolians who were coming from the east headed west into this like land region. And then you also had the Ottoman Empire, which was pushing up from the south. 
And basically, the Ottoman Empire would get blocked by the Carpathian Mountains if they wanted to get armies across to, like, attack. Right. And so, logistically, it was very hard to push past from the south, past the Carpathian Mountains, unless you were then on the sea, but then you would have to have, like, a large naval force, which a long time that wasn't like a thing it was very hard to have a large (laughs) yeah it was very hard to mount a sea invasion so trading was kind of more common for from that area all up in like these mountain region and so you still had like a sharing of culture but that was kind of an area that was often just like divided and so for hundreds of years you've had this land being Part of like different areas where it was like part of like the Polish Lithuanian land, Russia, parts of it getting like pushed and pulled from like all over the place. So it has just a very interesting history where it was very much like a mixing ground for stories and religions. Yeah. And different people who would move in to live there or large groups of people that would suddenly leave. Uh So just very much like in flux. It always excites me to hear about places like that or situations where, you know, like these crossroads of different cultures meeting for whatever reason, like this one, it happens to be geography. It's often geography, especially going back in the day. Yeah. Because really interesting things happen. I'm uh, reading a book or I just got done reading a book for like a business class that I've been, but it's called the innovators DNA. And one of the things they talk about is like innovative people are constantly like exposing themselves to new ideas. And that's why so many like innovative and interesting things and lots of like technological advancements and lots of, you know, academic advancements and just knowledge tends to like you know, grow and compound and expand when there are these meeting of cultures because yeah. there's this cross, you know, pollination of ideas that spur, like, it's like chemical reactions, right? It's like sometimes these things just go across each other, but sometimes these two ideas hit together and it just like causes something to happen in someone's brain that leads things off into like a completely different direction that we've never gone before that helps yeah. change things, hopefully for the better. But it's just like, there's such cool things that happen in these like meeting, you know, these meeting grounds. Yeah. So I'm like, uh, it's getting me excited for this episode because I know that this story is going to come from there and, or these stories that we talked about, it's going to come from kind of that sort of a place. Yeah. And it just gets me fired up if you can't tell. Yeah. So I am reading an article from the Washington Post back from uh, 2015. And it's titled How Ukraine Became Ukraine and Seven Maps. Ooh, and, I'm, yeah, I'm and, also it, a big fan of maps. So. Yeah. And I'm like, I I would recommend like looking up this article just because it does help looking at the maps and then like kind of reading what was going on in the time period as it was like being shaped. But one thing that's going to be important for um, what we're talking about today is that in 988 AD, Vladimir, a prince of the Kievan Rus, was baptized by a Byzantine priest in an old Greek colony on the Crimean coast. And his conversion to Orthodox Christianity was a major influence of getting 
Christianity in this area as like one of the major religions. Uh-huh. And like a lot of the times when we talk on this podcast about Christianity and how it enters into different areas, uh-huh. Christianity gets heavily flavored <laughs> by what was already there when it got there, what yeah. what already religiously was there when it got there. Um, that's going to be important when we are talking about religious things that are going on in the story and also historically how the Pope, how the Pope (laughs) has felt about some of the things that are like go on in that area. I mean, and also somewhat topical. This is reminding me of the episode of St. Patrick. When we talked about St. Patrick, I guess it must've been last year around St. Patrick's day. Like that is a, a prime example of this, of like the hallmarks of like what you would consider like Christianity of like St. Patrick is actually just like the culture that was there before that he sort of like absorbed and used. It's just fascinating. So moving on through the years. So that was, what did I say? 988 AD. Uh So moving like 600 years past that. In the 17th century, Russia and Poland split the territory of like what is currently Ukraine up along the lines of a river, which so often happens. But during the rule of Catherine the Great, she wanted to like re-expand stuff, like it to to the point that she wanted to expand stuff where she wanted to collapse the Ottoman Empire and <laughs> extend into like Istanbul and possibly even Jerusalem. So Catherine the Great, she dreamt big that's for she sure. <laughs> she dreamt big she's she is a fascinating character in history a lot of people there's this story of with her and a horse that people use to kind of like discredit basically like how much she did but in history she's a like fascinating uh character and so during her rule again there's like more kind of a uh, boundary shifting that went on. Uh-huh. But in the mid 19th century, Ukrainian nationalism started to be on everybody's mind and not, it, not just like in Ukraine that we've talked in the past about this, is like the same time period that we talked about in the Russia episode where Russians were starting to think about nationalism, like what made a Russian person a Russian Germans were doing the same thing. What makes a German a German? Cause we've talked about again, same time period, like brothers Grimm as they were thinking about what makes us who we are, like what, what traditions do we have? Um, regional dialects, just kind of what makes us us. But some of that, for a while had to be like put on hold basically as the whole world back and forth, World War One, Bolshevik Revolution, uh, World War Two, like this this area just went through a lot of back and forth. And as they were still trying to define what made them them, what was distinctly them. Right. And Part of the thing that caused the, you know, World War One and Two, at least some of the some element of that was it's hard to draw a hard and fast line in the ground 
to yeah. separate people like culturally, you know what I mean? Because yes. it's like, it, it's not, there's not a line. There's like kind of like gradients, you know, it like slowly fades and things blend together, yeah. like where they meet. And so like people were thinking that they have claim on a piece of land because of their culture that has something tied into it. But the people that live in that area happen to disagree, which is in no way relatable to things going on in the world today. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. Um, so it's just, it's interesting. It's like, it was put on hold because of these wars. It was like, and it was also somewhat probably tied into and a bit of the, a contributing factor yes. to the wars, which caused it to be put on hold. Yeah. And was also part of the process of determining those things. Yeah. Like the the wars helped draw the lines for good or for bad about what place was place A and what place was place B, regardless of how some of the people might have happened to feel about it. Yeah. And again, this is like a very fast and dirty like history <laughs> that we're going through. Absolutely nobody should do like a high school lesson on like on on <laughs> we shouldn't be used as a sound clip. <laughs> yeah. For do, a high school lesson on this. If if I see you cite us as a source in your paper, you are getting an F. <laughs> When it comes to this topic that we're doing a fast and dirty uh, over Yeah, definitely. I do recommend like people look it up, be informed. History is fascinating and it informs us today. All of this actually was kind of, well, I had several reasons for running through this that are going to be important later. But one of them is that um, like the the request to tell Ukrainian folk tales itself is kind of a fraught um and difficult process because it requires pinning down what is a ukrainian folktale yeah and what is a kind of a greater slavic folktale and so one of the closest that i could get was i found a book that was called cossack fairy tales and folktales the term cossack is it also has a very long history and it also depends on who's saying it where and when they're saying it because sometimes it's used to refer to russians in a derogatory way uh-huh. but then also it's how some groups of ukrainians identify themselves like as ukrainians Right. That's, yeah, I've never understood. And I'm glad that it's like something that is like, no, this is like a difficult thing to understand because I've, that, mm-hmm. that's one like in history classes, I'd be like, I don't, when you say the Cossacks, like, I do not know who you were talking about. Oh yeah. No. Cause I, <laughs> I was looking online trying to like pin it down because I was like, wait, I thought that this was like a derogatory term because it also in other places has been used as a derogatory term for certain groups of Jewish people. Oh, interesting. But also, I think that the words itself in Ukrainian or Russian or whatever country is saying them, depending on their their spelling, whether it's like a K or a C or with an A or a U or like what, like they are yeah. different words in themselves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and <laughs> so when I first, when I like found this book, I was like, wait, what? <laughs> um but like as i was reading the introduction to it i was like okay so these are considered like ukrainian folktales through this one group 
And the author, who is R. Nesbitt Bain, wrote in 1894 in the preface of this book, the comparative isolation and primitiveness of the Cossacks, and again, he wrote this in 1894. It is super rude to call groups primitive. (laughs) (laughs) Folklorists should not be doing that. (laughs) So I'm just going to throw that out there. The comparative isolation and primitiveness of the Cossacks and their remoteness from the great theaters of historical events would seem to be favorable conditions both for the self-preservation of old myths and the easy development of new ones. And so he was that this author was identifying like, oh, this region, it's very interesting because of um, some of the remoteness of where they are, because there are a lot of uh, physical, the, the the topography. Mm-hmm. of the region does cause some isolation but then also there it's like a thoroughfare for like a lot of different stuff and so it makes it a very interesting place to look at and he was saying that in 1894 the perfect combination of isolated and connected <laughs> yeah. yeah like isolated enough to have like very unique things but connected enough to be informed by other things is what it sounds like yeah. It's like, it's both very desirable land, but then it also has areas that are very, like, hard to um, maintain a empire control over. Mm. Yeah. Just, that's an interesting way to look at it, too. Yeah, of like, oh, that's desirable, but also it's hard uncontrollable yeah it's yeah, it's hard to hold on to as, as, a, as a point of an empire, which is... In the long history of the area, why it's like you had like the Ottomans, the Mongols, and the Rus all all over the place. Yeah. So as I was going through this book, but getting on to the tale portion of the podcast, as I was reading through these fairy tales and folk tales, trying to, you know, find a good one for this episode, um, something that, you know, we would have something to add to the conversation instead of, you know, just retelling a tale. (laughs) I found this story that was called The Vampire and St. Michael. And I was like, okay, let's, let's see, let's read. And as I was reading it, it was interesting to me how much the story reminded me of an episode. Alien versus Predator. Oh, sorry. (laughs) I was amazed with how much it reminded me of an episode of The Witcher in season one. Ah. And as we know, the author of The Witcher series, he's Polish and is very informed by Slavic folk tales. So it made full sense. But then I ended up doing a deep dive into vampires, which is something that I'm going to be frank and honest with everybody here. Vampires don't do it for me <laughs> like as a topic. I never thought we would do an episode on vampires because I feel like so much has been talked about them that I didn't mm-hmm. feel like I had anything that would be like valuable to say about vampires and that right. you know couldn't be found anywhere else. Yeah, I mean, I knew that 100% we were going to do an episode on vampires at some point because like since I was in high school Dracula has been one of my favorite books of all time so um you may have been in denial about it but this was an inevitable <laughs> 
You're like one way or another, it was gonna. Happen. It was gonna happen. Plus, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, huge fan of that show yeah. when I was younger. So, and I've that, never seen it. And I and I really doubt any of the knowledge from either of those things is gonna have. Oh, ma- Dracula, maybe, but you know, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, not gonna have a maybe a lot of jokes and references I can throw in, yeah. but. Other than that, I don't think it's going to add all that much to this conversation, but I'm excited to get into it anyway. Yeah, no. So let's actually, let's start with Bram Stoker's Dracula, because I think in in modern times, when we hear vampire, and at least like in the English speaking world, one of the first things that we think of is Bram Stoker's Dracula. He is he is the vampire that basically we measure every other vampire story to. Yeah. Because it was such a big success that it it was like Dracula is the first vampire that's kind of lodged itself into um everyone's subconscious. Right. And that is something that like that happens in folk tales and fairy tales. I feel like, again, we've covered that when we talk about like Disney and how Disney kind of solidified how everybody views Cinderella, Sleeping Beauty, Snow yeah. White. And just because if if everybody's seen it, it's this shared cultural knowledge. Yeah, it's like a touchstone that everyone can go back to. Like, I'm sure we'll get into this episode. Vampire has a lot of meanings in a lot of different places, but because of Dracula, that's the thing. Like we, everyone may have their own idea of like what a vampire is to them, but yeah. everyone can go back and say like, okay, we understand Dracula, what Dracula is as a vampire. And then kind of go from there. Like you, even if you're trying to explain your different version yeah, and like the different, like, cause a lot of things are like the rules around like how to like defeat them or what they yes. do. Like you, yes. this is for, in our day and age and our cultural standpoint, like that's, the way that we go about it, going back to that like common ground. Yeah. And so because everybody understands like the rules that were laid out by Bram Stoker, it's interesting is like Bram Stoker, Abraham Stoker, he was an Irishman and he wrote stories in England and he was coming with that sensibility. He's an outsider to like the history and the culture of the people of the Carpathian Mountains. And so when he wrote Dracula, he was writing a story from like his point of view. And he was using it to illustrate points for his culture. He was using that story as like a vehicle to say things to his audience that were reflective of the time that he was living in. So when Bram Stoker was writing like the rules around his vampire for basically, you know, this fantasy world, anybody who's like a fantasy author writes kind of rules for how to use the magic in their world or whatever. And it's kind of that same thing that with Bram Stoker and he borrowed things that did have a basis in some different cultures, but the the rules that he laid down are specific for his monster in that book. So like he has to travel with dirt from his birthplace or he can be repelled by garlic or uh, burned by crosses. Those are not the same rules that the vampire and one of the stories that we're going to be telling today follow. Mm -hmm. And the rules for vampires were actually very regional based on like who was telling the story, what districts 
all over uh, the Carpathian Mountains, like, thought about vampires. And also the way that vampires look, the physical description that Bram Stoker used for his vampire are actually some anti-Semitic stereotypes that he decided to borrow. Yeah. Don't Um, love that. No. So, and there have been, like, the papers that, you know, have been written on that, that if people, that's not the main focus of what we're talking about. But it, again, illustrates, like, Bram Stoker's Dracula was, again, reflective of of him as an author and what he was trying to say to, like, his audience. So if people are thinking, oh, I know what vampires look like based on what Dracula was described as looking like, like, that's just one vampire being described by a man who was not part of the the tradition where, like, vampires come from. Right. So what Katrina is basically saying is check yourself before you wreck yourself. (laughs) Yes. Perfect. Exactly. So Dracula, the vampire from Bram Stoker, there's kind of a backstory that I think a lot of people have heard. And I've also heard it conflated to be something else that it's not. So I have a, a quote from a book that I will read like Quickly, because there's more in the quote that we will use later. But a lot of people are like, oh, yeah, did you know that vampires are based off of, like, Vlad? Mm, Yeah, Vlad the Impaler. Yes, but (laughs) the name Dracula that Bram Stoker gave his vampire is related to that person. But the whole concept of vampires are not based off of, like, that man. So... I'm going to read kind of a long quote. It's by Timothy K. Beals from Religion and Its Monsters. And it's going to cover something that's going to be interesting for what we're talking about today. I think there is a copy of that book in my home. Really? Yeah, I think that was one of, because remember when Clarice took a class. (gasps) That's right. Yeah, Clarice took a class called Monsters Ancient and Modern. She had a, a semester in college that was just like every class was a Harry Potter sounding like course name and that was one of them <laughs> monsters ancient and modern and that was one of her textbooks because i've seen that book i can like picture it in my oh, mind yeah and just now i'm like where did i put my copy of it i wrote down the quote and then threw the book away no it's probably in my bedroom but anyway <laughs> so it says but the heart and soul of this monstrous personification of cultural otherness The heart and soul of Dracula is deeply religious. That this monster has deep religious roots is is indicated by his very name, which identifies him with the biblical tradition of diabolical monstrosity, especially with the great devil dragon of the Apocalypse of John. Count Dracula was named after the Romanian Prince Vlad, famous for impaling enemies and his own nobility on stakes around his castle. His family crest bore the order of the dragon, or Dracul. His father was Vlad Dracul, or Vlad the Dragon, and he himself was called Vlad Dracula, or Vlad the son of Dracul. In Romanian, moreover, the word Dracul can mean either the dragon or the devil. This association of dragon and devil probably derives from the diabolical dragon in the Apocalypse of John, who is introduced as the Great Dragon. 
that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the great devil dragon of the apocalypse who is defeated by the archangel Michael and ultimately sent to the abyss by God. So now I am going to retell a story that is called The Vampire and Saint Michael. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Which hopefully you understand a little bit about the background of Saint Michael from that quote. The Archangel, Saint Michael, he defeated a great dragon once. Did that make sense? I got there. It did make sense. I got you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, all right. I'm smelling what you're stepping in. Gross. So the story of the vampire and Saint Michael, which makes it sound like the two of them are going to do battle with each other. Oh, man. And you saying that makes me very sad because it's like they're not. And now I'm like, I don't care. (laughs) (laughs) You're like, please let this story be over then. Okay, so once upon a time, and it says that, which we we very rarely get a once upon a time. I can't remember a single other one that has been that way. I know. And I would not have expected the one about vampires and St. Michael (laughs) to be the one that started that way. Once upon a time. But here we are. (laughs) So yeah, once upon a time, there were these two neighbors. One was very, very rich and the other was so poor that it says all he had to his name was a little hut that was falling down around his ears. (laughs) Um, Yeah. And it got to the point where he was so poor and had nothing to eat that finally he decided he was going to swallow his pride. He was going to go over to his rich neighbor's house and he was going to ask him if he could please just have like one silver ruble so that he could like buy just some food to last he and his wife a little while longer. So he went over to his rich, rich next door neighbor and was like hey is there any way that i could borrow a silver ruble and his neighbor was like oh yeah of course no problem who's gonna vouch for you (laughs) and yeah the guy was like well i I don't have anybody that could vouch for me but like i i need help like would you be willing to like help me and the neighbor was like well no like if you don't have anybody who's gonna like vouch for you like repaying it then like I don't see why I should give you money. And this guy pointed up to a picture that was hanging in this rich man's house of St. Michael. It was an icon. Mm -hmm. So very decorative uh, piece depicting uh, St. Michael. And he pointed uh, up to the picture and he said, God and St. Michael will vouch for me because you will be blessed for doing this good deed for me and this rich man was like fine if god and saint michael are going to vouch for you then i guess i will give you this money (laughs) so he gives this guy one silver ruble and this poor man leaves back to his house you know get some food and whatever so a little while longer you know passes and this guy is getting more and more irritated because he decided that what he wanted was not like God and St. Michael to bless him in, in a, in a, in a non-tangible, unmeasurable way. He wanted to know that he was going to get that money back. Yeah. He wanted, he wanted a, his silver ruble back. Like it does, it didn't matter to him if like God gave him a good crop that year or like, 
cows that gave more milk or whatever. He was like, no, no, no. I tangibly want that traded with me. None of this, like, you will receive your reward in heaven nonsense. Like, he was like, you know what? No, that's not what I want. I want that silver ruble back. It has been long enough that this guy should get it to me. So he goes over to this guy's house and he's like pounding on his door and he's like, thou son of a dog. (laughs) (laughs) Like, where is my money? I want my money back right now. And the wife of the poor man, she comes to the door and she was like, um, I'm so sorry. My husband always pays his debts and he would have paid this one too if he was still alive. (laughs) But he had died. And this rich man was like, oh my gosh, that is a bunch of bullcrap. And so he goes back to his house and he grabs the icon of St. Michael and he pulls it down off his wall and he starts kicking it. Says he gouged out the eyes of this like icon and was just like kicking it, stamping on it, going like nuts. He took this fight with this icon (laughs) into the yard. Um, So he was like... (laughs) And like, because he was just like, like, how dare you, like, you know, vouch for this guy and I'm not getting my reward. Again, he wanted it to be a very tangible <laughs> silver ruble. That's what he wanted. So he's just going nuts. And this young man who they say looked about 20 years old, he comes up and, you know, sees this guy kicking the tar out of St. <laughs> Michael. Michael. And he's like, stop, 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 stop. Why are you doing this? And the guy, which this sounds unhinged, but the guy's like, St. Michael said that he was going to get me a silver ruble and he owes me my money. And like, why have them like, again, he's like kicking like a, an image of this person, like a statue yeah. or like a, a, a painting, like some kind of a decorative item. But he's like, this, this guy owes me money, which makes you sound unhinged. But the young man, he was like, if you will stop destroying this like image i'll give you a silver ruble and the guy was like okay yeah like if you have a silver ruble i'll take it and this kid was like okay just like hold on i'm i'm gonna go back i I, i'll i'll grab it from my uncles and so they were like okay no problem and so that man was like okay i'll wait So this young man, he runs back to his family home and he kind of explains what's going on and is like, I need, I need this money. And his dad was like, you know what? Like, we don't have that much money. I don't know if it's like worth it. And he's like, please, dad, it's really important to me. So his dad was like, okay, fine. Gave him the money. He went and he got it. And his dad was kind of like, okay, so that was expensive And you're going to need to kind of like pay me back. Maybe you could go work (laughs) with your three uncles who are these like merchants. And he's like this torn up, dirt stained, (laughs) stomped image of St. Michael will vouch for the fact that I will pay you back. That I'll pay you back, dad. Um, Yeah, no, his dad was more of the concern of like, like, hey. Like, it's cool that you want to do this thing and all, but it's like, it's going to be your money. Like, you made this choice. Like, I lent yeah. you this. But, like, if if it's that important to you, you're going to be the one that's actually paying it, not me. Yeah. And so this this young man, he was like, sure. I, like, I'll go and talk to my uncles about maybe going with them. Because these uncles were wealthy merchants who traveled 
to sell their wares. And so he went to his uncles and he was like, hey, is there any way that I can go with you on your travels to like sell stuff like as a merchant? And they were like, sure. But what are you going to sell? And he was like, well, I. Yeah, fair point. He's like, well, I make lathe so I can sell lathe. And what lathe are for people who. Okay. Yeah, like I, yeah, I'll I'm explain. Like, yeah, your your face, you're like, okay, he's going to do what? <laughs> um, so when you're building a house, the the supporting beams that are inside of the wall, mm-hmm. they're very far apart from each other. They're creating like, you know, the girth and the strength of the wall. But if you're right. going to put plaster on them, they there has to be something for the plaster to like mm, adhere to. to. Yeah. And so lathe are really thin boards that like you know you attach to those the the framework right and between them you that's where you can stuff the insulation is like between you know on both sides of a wall right connected to those beams is the lathe and then you plaster on top of that in today's construction a lathe can be sheetrock. Yeah, it's like lathe can be made of a lot of different types of material, and uh, and sheetrock in the U.S. is one of the more common uh, things that you put stuff on top of once right. the sheetrock is connected. But back then, lathe and in in constructions and other places, they still use lathe, still but it can that. be again, it can be made out of different material. But this, no, back in this story, wood lathe. And his uncles were kind of like, lathe is kind of a dumb thing to <laughs> like to travel to sell. Right. Because basically anyone in a location can sell lathe. You know what I mean? Like it's like there right. are some, you know, like spices that they have to travel or fabric that have to because they make a type of fabric in one location and then you take it to other places. So this youth took St. Michael and his lathe, and he went with his three uncles. And so they traveled around selling stuff for a while, and they came to, it says, I love this, that they sailed a short distance and they sailed a long distance (laughs) till at last they came to another Tsardom and another empire. So they had traveled to this like new place that had this czar. And this czar had a very particular problem because he had had a daughter who had gone swimming. And when she went swimming, somehow she was possessed by an unclean spirit. So this like some demonic force had gone into her while she was swimming. That is fascinating continue yes and so after this demonic spirit had come into her she had fallen ill and they no doctor could cure what it was and she slowly just kind of withered away to nothing and then she died but the father the czar really wanted his daughter to have her prayers read to her before she was interred, you know, before Mm -hmm. she was buried. He wanted to kind of know for a surety that like her soul was safe. 
And so he wanted prayers read for her. But every time somebody went into the church where her coffin was, they would start reading scripture and then die. And it says like every morning a person would go in and retrieve what was left of the person. And it was them just sweeping bones out of this like church building. And so a lot of the people who were from the kingdom were too scared uh, to to go in and read this woman her prayers because they had gone through a certain amount of people. Yeah. So the czar had come up with this interesting idea where he was going to have all of the traveling merchants try to read the prayers to her because, (laughs) you know, it's okay to kill other people's citizens. Out-of-towners. Yeah, the out-of-towners. And it became the eldest of the three uncles. It was Uh his turn to go in. And that uncle went to his nephew and he was like, listen, I have a wife back home. I have kids back home. Like, I don't want to go in and do this because I don't want to die. But I feel comfortable with you doing it. (laughs) (laughs) And at first, this youth was, like, really afraid to go in. Obviously. Uh, Yeah, I wonder why. Yeah. But the icon of St. Michael spoke to him. And said, go in to this girl, bring your lathe to create a boundary around you and bring in a basket of pears and read your scriptures from the moment that you get in to like when the when the cock crows and you will be okay." And so the youth was terrified, but he listened to St. Michael and he went in. So he went in, uh, went into this church during the day. He set up a boundary of the lathe around him so that he was kind of, you know, in his own little cage. Yeah. <laughs> it's like going to feed sharks. <laughs> so he's he's in this little boundary and he's got this like basket of pears And when night falls, he hears this like bang, bang. And then the lid of the coffin lifts up. And this girl, the princess, she like comes out of the coffin and she goes over to him where he's in his little like personal cage. And she's like reaching for him, scratching at him, trying to like (laughs) get at him. And he's just like sitting there trying to like read the scriptures like out loud doing like the scripture reading the prayers. Yeah. And he takes the basket of pears and he just like dumps it over like the side of like his enclosure. (laughs) And immediately the princess had to the princess in the form of this like vampire creature had to stop and find and pick up and count all of the Uh. pears that he had dumped on the floor. And she didn't get done with that task until the first cock crowed. So when the first cock crowed, she went back to her coffin, put the lid down on her and it was silent. So he terrified just stayed reading like his scriptures (laughs) until the first person came in to collect his bones right Uh so they come in to collect his bones and they see him standing there perfectly fine just you know deeply terrified and they're like whoa that's amazing so they take him out and then they tell the second oldest uncle hey tomorrow night's your turn and 
the second uncle goes to his nephew and he's like, please, I have a wife. I have kids. Like, I I don't want to die like doing this thing. Will you please stand in for me? And the nephew's like, no, I don't want to do it. That's like terrifying. But the icon of St. Michael was like, don't worry. I've got your back. Build your boundary of lathe. This time, bring in a basket full of walnuts. And even do smaller these, than pears. Even smaller than pears. Same thing that you did last night. So he goes inside this chapel, builds his little cage of lathe and his like basket of walnuts. And <laughs> it's such a funny image. Yeah. <laughs> Just like like you've described it so well. It'd be like like a little shark. Little yeah, shark it's like, little, it's like his like little enclosure. <laughs> um, and so again, night falls. There's the bang, bang, and the lid comes off, and this princess vampire, you know, possessed by this like evil spirit, comes out, and she again goes at him, is reaching through his cage, and he's just like trying to read his scriptures. <laughs> trying to say his prayers and she's like reaching for him and he's terrified so he takes the basket full of walnuts and he dumps it over the side and they scatter everywhere she stops what she's doing and she starts to collect these items and she's busy collecting and counting these walnuts until the first cock crows and she has to go back into her coffin and close the lid so again people come out to you know collect this kid's bones and they find him terrified but alive and they're like wow that's really great they go to the youngest uncle and are like hey so tonight's your turn and again the youngest uncle he goes to his nephew and he's like listen i got a wife i got kids like i can't be dying i don't want to do this and this youth is like i don't want to do this this is like horrible and traumatizing i love too how like you know like they're they're not enforcing that they're like, they are going and like saying, okay, it's your turn now. It's your turn now. It's your turn now. Yeah. But they're not, they're not making, they're like, look, as far as like the people who are running this whole thing, (laughs) we don't actually care who goes in, like whatever. As long as someone goes in, we're cool with it. Yeah. They're like, you know what? We're trying to be fair that everybody, you know, does a thing. But if, if your nephew wants to like go in for it, like in your place, like, I guess that's fair. Yeah. Um, just as long as somebody takes your turn. But yeah, they've got a system. So again, St. Michael tells him, don't worry, you'll be fine. But tonight is the third night and we have to do something different. So what you're going to do is you're going to go in and you're going to build your your cage made out of life. But you're going to bring in a basket of poppy seeds, which oh. tiny, 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 tiny. You're going to bring those in and you're going to dump those out. And when she is distracted by those, you are going to sneak behind her. You're going to get out of your cage. You're oh, going to sneak behind her and you're going to climb into her coffin. <gasps> and you have to close the lid and you have to stay down there. No matter what she says to you, you have to stay inside of her coffin until she says the words, my consort to you. <laughs> That's the safe word. <laughs> That's so weird. That's my safe word. <laughs> For the orgies that I keep leaving before they start. <sighs> Good times. So the youth went in once again, built 
his little cage of the lathe and had his basket of poppy seed. And this time, as night fell, a huge storm came up outside and the wind was blowing outside and it was roaring through the eaves of this building and he could hear the rain as it was like clattering like outside. But then he didn't know whether it was thunder or the sound of the coffin opening when he heard the bang bang oh man but pretty soon he knew that it was definitely that lady because she rushed at the boards and was trying again to scratch and claw her way in to like grab him and eat him and he like dumped the basket of poppy seeds all over the room. And when she got distracted, he ran as quickly as he could up into her coffin and slammed down the lid on himself. But almost immediately, this woman knew that what he had done. And so she was calling like after him to like come down using her like sweetest and kindest voices and just all kinds of persuasion to like get him to like uh. come out of the coffin. But he just like stayed inside of this coffin was like, no, no, no. Like I'm not gonna leave. I'm not gonna leave. It's gonna be fine. And he didn't know how close all through the whole night he didn't know how close it was till dawn because he you know was enclosed inside of this coffin for he didn't know how long and he could hear this woman like outside like trying to like beg and plead with him like come down come down i'll try and catch thee no more i promise oh do come down and see me and he's just like no 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 and Finally, he hears the cock crow in the morning for the third time. And then there was quiet. And then he heard a woman's voice say, alas, come down, come down, my consort. And so he's like, oh, my gosh, that's a safe word. (laughs) So he takes the lid off of the coffin and he climbs down and he sees, you know, this woman now not foaming at the mouth, demonic eyes, crazy, but just like a normal regular like woman and she's on her knees and she is praying her thanks to God that she was able to be freed from this demonic spirit. Are you thinking the same thing I'm thinking, which is like, I thought this lady was dead. Yeah. Yeah. No, I guess. Just sick. Just so sick that like the, the, her spirit wasn't gone, just repressed like inside of her because there's also this this like belief that the spirit doesn't quite leave for like a certain amount of time. Sometimes right. it's 40 days. Sometimes it's seven years. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So it like, it depends. So maybe her spirit was close enough to her that now she was like alive, but the evil that had possessed her was now like out of her. The like demonic that was in her was like yeah. you know, out of her. So she's, you know, sitting down praying. And so he joins her. He gets down like on his knees and he is like praying and thanking God and St. Michael that he was able to like make it through the night. So when the people came in again to collect his bones, they see instead he and this princess down on their knees, like praying and worshiping. And they run and they get the czar. And the czar was so grateful to have his daughter back and alive and fine that he told the young man that he was going to bestow upon him half of his power and half of his kingdom. But the nephew was like, no, thank you. That all 
is not what I want. And he got back on the ship with his merchant uncles and they went back home, which that's not the end of the story. But isn't that so weird? Like (laughs) for him to be like, you get half my kingdom. And he's like, no, thanks. I'm so traumatized. I'm leaving. So he left. But the czar, you know, grateful to have his daughter back, but he could see how, like, deeply sad she was. And he kept going to her, asking her, like, why are you so sad? Like, why are you so sad? Like, what are you so upset about? Um, And she was like, no, it's fine. I'm not, it's nothing. I'm just, like, I'm very tired. Like, it's just been a very, like, rough ordeal for me. But I'm fine, father. You don't have to worry about me. And then this one night, the czar, while he was sleeping, he had a dream and a voice said to him, thy daughter grieves because she loves so much the youth who saved her. And mm. so the czar the next morning, like, went to her and he was like, oh, were you in love with that man? Like, do you want him? And she, you know, confessed her father that she did want him. She did love him so much. So he sent some of his court to send this message to this boy and tell him that he wanted this princess to be married to him and, you know, that they would be together. And to that. This young man agreed. It said when they went and they got him, he took just the same lathes and boards that he had had before and went with them. (laughs) And I'm like, what in the world? Because in my head, I was like, was he planning on like, if I'm marrying this woman, I'm going to build a cage every night so I can stay away from the. (laughs) I don't know. He's like, you never know. But what happened was he when he went back to the kingdom with, you know, to meet with the czar. He brought those boards with him. I do not, I'm not clear why, but he brought the boards and the czar took them and split them and precious stones flew out of these boards. And this youth and this princess were married and they lived right merrily together. Aww. The end. So this is a vampire Unlike the vampire that I picture in my head, because what I picture in my head is very much like Bram Stoker's version of like a vampire. And so this like female vampire and her situation that she was possessed by another spirit before she died was like a new situation for me. And then also his way of like deterring her was again, like new to me. Right. Yeah, it's it's so interesting because there are things in this that you see in other places. Mm-hmm. I joked before about how my knowledge of Buffy the Vampire Slayer was not going to come into play so much, but it kind of is in the sense that like one thing that you don't get as much in like Bram Stoker's Dracula is the fact that like this person that is a vampire like is a person that you know that is like being changed or possessed by something. Yeah. Like the vampires that, that are there like are just basically they are vampires. Mm -hmm. They, they did go through some process of changing, but for the most part, you don't see it happen. Like one character, you do kind of see it happen, but they sort of like preemptively sort of stop it. Like she just kind of like becomes like less and less herself and more just like, like flighty and like aloof seeming. Yeah. But you know, you see in like Buffy the Vampire Slayer or whatever, like they get bit, they get turned into a vampire. And now this person that you thought you knew has become somebody else is a really fascinating idea that people have played with in a lot of different ways. And I think that's interesting about this is how she like becomes a vampire and then is like cured of being a vampire, which is also something that you don't really see very often. And then 
a thing which I don't remember if it's in Dracula or not, because even though I said it was like one of my favorite books, I haven't read it for a while. But the whole idea of like counting, like that is a common thing about like vampire creatures creatures like in a lot of places like throughout the world like i know there's stories like that even in asia and and it's like on sesame street the count on sesame street that's why the count is the count because he's obsessed with counting things because that's part of like being a vampire i did not make that connection you like obsessively have to count things that's hilarious Um, yeah no that's like that's where it comes from i didn't know that that's new information to me and it's just a coincidence that like count dracula count the like no noble title happens yeah. to be a homonym for like one two no, three and that's, four that's five that's why i thought that he counted was because he was a count like count dracula right. or whatever i was like oh yeah. it's funny because count and he counts i yeah. didn't make the connection that like vampires have to like sit and like count things yeah that that is the most delightful thing I've I've ever heard. And that was yeah. the whole purpose for doing the podcast. And like, we're done. <laughs> I'm living for that. Another thing that is common is like that whole use of religion, like being the thing that can keep these creatures at bay. Like the idea that it is like a, a demonic evil creature, whether yes. it's like a, a demonic creature that is in someone else's body, which kind of seems like that, like they become, they become this thing, like something overcomes them. They're not the person that they were. Yeah. Some evil force takes them over. And thus like religion, like in this one, it's like reading the Bible, you know, saying your prayers in lots of other general, you know, like, especially in like pop culture and stuff like that, like holy water and crucifixes and, you know, crosses. St. Michael is the one that is instructing him on how he can do these things. Yeah. And it's all centered around them, like praying inside of a church, trying to say these prayers. The prayer itself wasn't like enough to do it. There had to be that combination of the, the three nights outside of her coffin until the cop crowed. Yeah. And so it's like the prayer wasn't enough, but St. Michael who defeated the devil Dracul, yeah. like, uh-huh. um, is the one like in this story who is, um, yeah, giving like the instruction. And even the cock crowing, like three nights. I mean, like the number three is very important in Christianity. Yeah, like a cock crowing three times is important because an apostle, you know, like denied Christ three times before the cock crowed. crowed. Yeah, and then obviously like the three three days, like Christ was in the tomb before he was resurrected. It's like three days that this person was like this demonic creature before she came back and was herself again, back from the dead. Like we thought it's just like, there is a religion. Yeah. Like you hinted at earlier. is like, is a big part of the whole vampire thing. And so on that note of, of like religiousness, the word vampire, there is a major debate of like where it came up first. There are different schools of thoughts of like, the word vampire and it's it's history and where it's from but one one thing that is interesting is that as scholars are like looking through trying to figure out where this word was used popped up and in which like european countries finding different varying instances where people are are using the word which is of course it's interesting to them 
as proof of how old the word is or when it was written down that way where it is. But one of the places that it has popped up in Italy, the Latin use of the word for vampire proceeds in writing its kind of commonly used vernacular. So I am reading a book called The Vampire, a case book by Alan Dundas. And... Uh, One of the essays inside of it. So it's a collection of essays edited by Alan Dundas. Hopefully I'm saying his name right. Because I know people who know better than me. So the essay in this book, The Vampire, a case book um, that I'm reading from is The History of the Word Vampire. So this one part that I thought was really interesting. It says Pope Benedict realized that the belief in vampires was firmly rooted in ancient superstition and was not easy to extirpate. So he ended up writing a chapter, the Pope, Pope Benedict in 1749, ended up writing a a chapter specifically about vampires, but kind of like the the belief that people had in them. And it's in Latin. And so I'm not even going to attempt to try to say it. No, I am just kidding. It says in the chapter entitled Devantium Vampirium, the Pope takes issue with the cruel maltreatment and mutilation of corpses believed to be vampires. Mm. So it's just interesting that in Italy, the Latin was being used by the Pope who was concerned about this thing happening. And this comes up religiously several times in the Catholic Church as archbishops, bishops, the the diocese, like people who were working in these areas in churches were asking their higher ups, what do we do about people in our towns who keep wanting to exhume bodies and mutilate them? them. Yeah. Yeah. Like, what do we do about this? And like over and over again, it was like popes having to be like, I don't know how to get them to stop. Like it's so like it's so deeply rooted in the folk culture. Yeah. That like it's a really difficult to root it out because as we talked about at the beginning of the episode when Christianity or any religion kind of like moves into a different area, it kind of also takes on the flavor of that area and like what people believe. Interestingly, in another essay, titled East European Vampires, talk about how uh, in 1973, so that's like 50 years ago, there was a death that occurred in London and it made it into the newspaper. It was titled Immigrants' Fears of Vampires Led to Death. In 1973, this Polish immigrant who was 68 years old He had fallen asleep with a piece of garlic, like a clove of garlic in his mouth, and he accidentally inhaled it and like choked to death on it. And so when the police, you know, were kind of doing their investigation all around his room. And I'm not saying that this is like indicative of all Polish people in the 1970s, but you know, this happened in like the 1970s. Um, But yeah, they were looking around his bedroom and there were a lot of different things that were all around. And his landlady said that there had been like recently like a death in the family. And so he was afraid that if the person who had died had become a vampire after they died, that he would be one of the next people who would be like in trouble 
of mm-hmm. of dying and so he was taking these like precautions yeah obviously it had the opposite effect of what he desired but it like it's it's just interesting just how when something is very deeply rooted like in a culture it takes a long time for people to like stop believing in it and even today i mean there's lots of people who still believe in like a lot of things that you know other people would label as like superstition or like fantasy so yeah it's interesting that you know it keeps coming up in these religious ways of like how do we get people to not be doing these things even though what's interesting is that in the stories themselves religion and especially like the Christian religion is being used as a way in the beliefs of these people to fight these creatures. And at the same time, their religious leaders are like, stop it. Stop believing in vampires (laughs) because you're doing things that we don't like. It is such an interesting little contradiction, which those types of contradictions are just so lovely and rich because it's like, so complicated it's so complicated and yeah. so interesting like it's one of those things where we've talked about in the past about kind of the difference between religious beliefs that are right. like part of like a canonized group of beliefs and doctrines um and dogma and then what is colloquial vernacular belief right like how how people live their religion not what the Bible says and the preachers preach, but what people actually do in their daily lives yeah. with the religion is often quite different than what is the established canonized doctrine. And kind of where this bumps up to what we were talking about right at the beginning of like uh, plagues and pandemic and fairy tale. There have been several instances throughout history in these areas of vampire epidemics um mm-hmm. that's what they're called because it seems to be like an outbreak of vampires and vampire hysteria so one of the explanations for when these quote unquote like vampire epidemics kind of crop up is when there is kind of an outbreak of illness or mass deaths Especially when there are so many deaths that people might not have been able to be buried in the proper time frame and with like the proper like watchful eye. Because some of the beliefs of how vampires came to be, and it varies so much region by region, of how a vampire becomes like a vampire. But some of the ways are birds flying over the corpses or a dog or a cat leaping over the corpse an unholy person or like a bad person stepping over the corpse or basically like the corpse not being properly cleaned and blessed before they are buried and like that is going to happen more when there's a lot of like mass death and you know, you can't dig graves fast enough. And so mm-hmm. the body is above ground more than you would like before it gets buried. And also this is used to explain this connection with family and so many parts of the legends 
The people who are the most in danger after a person dies are family members. Yeah. Like their loved ones, their children, spouse, parents. Those are the people who are most likely to be affected by like a vampire outbreak. But that's also who's most likely to be affected during an illness. An infectious disease outbreak. An infectious (laughs) disease outbreak. And when you didn't have germ theory to explain what was going on and you had, you know, a child who had gotten really, really sick and, you know, the family's really upset. They've been caring for this kid, hovering around them, breathing in, you know, all of the same kind of stuff. And then that child dies, they bury it. And then the mother, you know, starts wasting away and people are like, oh, maybe it's because this child is coming to their mother at night because it wants her to join them in the grave. But in reality, it's like the mom's dying of like the same illness. All of the effort that she expended as a caregiver to this dying child has taken its toll and she's grieving and she's sick. And then she wastes away and she dies. And then when they go and dig up the child to see, because that so often is is how they figure out who it is, is they're like, well, we'll go and look for evidence. We will dig up these bodies and look at them and see if there's any signs of them, like, still being alive or leaving the grave or whatever. And sometimes, mm. like, the body has shifted inside of the coffin, which can be explained in other ways. Yeah. Or the body looks, like, full. And they're like, oh, no, it's plump and full. Obviously, it's been eating, it's been gorging itself, when really it's mm. like, that's just part of the decomposition. De- the decomposition is like some bloat or their like <sighs> lips look red or some all the stuff that they're like looking at that they're describing. It's just, you know, part of like the decaying process. And sometimes the decaying process looks different, whether this person died in a wintertime outbreak and so the soil is very cold or if it happens in a summertime like all of this like has an effect but yeah when they're going out and busting open like coffins to look and things don't look like you know quote unquote like what they think is like normal or natural and then this fear just like grows and as more people in the neighborhood yeah. are dying of things that are explained by germ theory like yeah people there's a hysteria that that kind of comes comes with that not knowing and then you have people trying to figure out folk remedies for preventing this and some of them today are that we think of like the garlic Uh where garlic has like a long history of being used to overpower the smell of death Mm -hmm. and like also to be used as like medicine or yeah, and, it's like, it has like antimicrobial and anti, you know, like antimicrobial properties, which if there's some sort of microscopic something that's making people sick, that could come in handy. Yeah. And also sometimes as we have seen with other anecdotal remedies in recent years, If a couple people who are sick use a product and then they start to get better, they think that what got them better 
wasn't like their immune system fighting it off or whatever. They think it was the it other was that thing, thing that they used. And even yeah. though they, you know, there's not scientific evidence that that helped, they're going to tell other people, oh, you need to be taking this vitamin, this supplement, this thing, because that's what I used and I got better. And so I'm very, I'm sure that there were people who did the things to combat vampires that they had heard might work. And it, and it, quote, it, it worked. worked. Yeah. Um, but some of the things, you know, that they were doing that were the most upsetting to the religious leaders were, was like the desecration of the bodies where yeah. they would pull the bodies out. They would cut them up in in a variety of like different ways. But one of the most common things that they would do is pull out the heart and then Mm -hmm. burn it and then take the ashes and mix it into a drink. And anybody who was sick in the family would then drink drink that. that. Oh, not a fan. And then if they recovered, then that was proof positive that like they solved the problem. Right. It's so interesting that so much of this really is like, I don't know what, like, I want to say confirmation bias, like survivorship bias, sort of. I mean, survivorship is a weird bias is a weird word to use for it. But like the example of the digging up the bodies, Mm -hmm. like they're only digging up a body to look at it because they suspect that it's a vampire. Like how often are they digging up bodies that have been buried for a certain period of time to look at it? Like they're comparing a body before they put it into the ground with a body that's been decomposing in the ground for however period of time. Yeah. But the only ones that they do that to are the ones that they suspect of being vampires and they're finding their proof because it's different than what they expect. But it's like, if you were to go through the entire cemetery after that set period of time and to see these things to all these people whose families weren't getting sick, people that had died of obviously natural causes or, you know, like not, vampire thing is like an accident or something like you would start seeing like oh like it doesn't matter what these people died of they're all shifting in their in their coffins they're all looking full or maybe not all but you know it's like this is a thing that happens besides this but it's like you're only looking into it in a certain case and you're finding something and attributing it to that when it's like you're so narrow-minded and it's the same thing with like the the remedies like yeah and so it is this cycle that kind of like, you know, feeds on itself. Fascinating. Yeah. Oh, especially because I was thinking like some of the places where they're most likely to see decomp would be animals that they would come across in the like the woods that were exposed to the elements that had been out there for they don't know how long. And animals look different from humans as they're decomposing because they're animals. They <laughs> a, a deer decomposing will look like a deer decomposing. And it's different because they're shaped different than a human. Yeah, when they they didn't know what normal decomp looked like. And so looking at regular decomp was terrifying, yeah. which it would be. Which, yeah, I'm like, I wouldn't want to. Yeah, I wouldn't want to either. Um, and so, yeah, there are a lot of like psychological reasons why these like vampire epidemics and his like outbreaks would happen that that we can like explain away um but it it is also interesting kind of what we're touching on right now of like folk medicine folk remedies and how you know we we aren't past that like as as human beings because just like the people then one we're human beings but like when we are met with something we can't 
explain or control or control yeah or control we look for the meaning the explanation or when we feel the control when we feel unsafe we want to find ways to be safe to like figure out how to be safe it was so interesting to me as i was researching vampires and especially from like a slavic point of view versus how i have been used to seeing vampires talked about which is very like western european and even like american variations uh on like vampires and vampire lore it was really really interesting to be studying like the history of vampires in like slavic cultures and reading these stories and just getting a different spin on characters that i thought that i knew and creatures that i thought i like understood I'm really excited to do more research into Ukraine and other Slavic folklore. So hopefully we'll be doing another episode another time this year um, on the same topic because it is just exactly like our Nesbitt Bain said, like it is a really interesting area to look at because the, the conditions for folklore to be created and made is just like so rich and incredible thank you for listening to the fairy tellers if you enjoy what we're doing please leave us a review or share us with your friends also consider supporting us on patreon for access to exclusive bonus content including outtakes and monthly bonus episodes at patreon.com slash the fairy tellers Special thanks to Andrew Foray for our music and to Clarice Inch for our artwork. And of course, a big thank you to all our patrons. Without all of you, this show wouldn't be possible. Fairy tales are always more interesting when something is added to them. Each new telling recharges the narrative, making it crackle and hiss with cultural energy. Maria Tatar Was that a full sentence? Did I have enough I so. nouns, verbs, and like adjectives in there? Or was there like a just an uncomfortable mix? <laughs> I don't know. It sounded fine to me. Well, it sounded good. I thought it was good. We'll fix it in post.